Coming to you again from the Alamo, along with Jim, who's in the manning the booth. Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, and it's increment 28 already. Aiston Aona to Aonos. Greek phrase we'll be considering today, and we'll be once again tackling an exegesis of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And we thank you, Father, that there is nothing hidden that shall not be revealed. So we pray that you will uncover hidden truths to our minds and hearts today through Jesus Christ our Lord and by the Spirit of grace we ask it. Amen. Now today we're going to run the iron over the royal garment that is Hebrews 1.8 to 9. One more time. Hebrews 1.8 reads like this, But to the Son he says, Your throne, God, is for the age of the age literally of the age your throne God is for the age of the age we could probably probably translate this your throne God that which father addresses this the father addresses this to the son Jesus Christ your throne God is for the duration of the age that would also probably be an acceptable translation And the scepter of your kingdom, Basileia, the scepter, Rabdos, is a scepter of equity. You could say fairness, justice, impartiality. In Hebrews 1.8, as in the Septuagint of Psalm 44.7, there is this phrase, ice tone aona, to Aeonos, and that's spelled E-I-S, the preposition, then the article T-O-N, and then the noun A-O, make that A-I, long O, N-A, A-I, long O, N-A, and then T-O-U, Aeonos, A-I-O, long O, N-O-S, Aston Aeona, to Aeonos, Again, literally construed, it would say, for the age of the age. The PT interprets the vocative or the direct address, your throne, O God, is for the age of the age. He attributes that to God the Father and speaking to the Son. And so, the age of the age is how long his throne and his scepter lasts. It refers to the age to come, as it's called, which in one sense has come, even now, but not yet fully. We live between the inauguration of this age that he's talking about with the tasting of death for everyone by Jesus. That's the inauguration of this age, the everlasting age of Messiah, beginning with the cross where he tasted death for everyone, followed by his burial 
in his resurrection, his ascension, and exaltation. We're focusing on that exaltation now. And then this will be followed in our future with the climacteric, C-L-I-M-A-C-T-E-R-I-C, or the extraordinary moment and turning point when, quote, he will be seen a second time. He will appear a second time, yes, but the emphasis on the verb is appear and be seen. He will be seen a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Hebrews 9.28. Now, as I, Howard Marshall, that's I, period, Howard Marshall observed, in an article called Soteriology in Hebrews, from the Epistle to the Hebrews in Christian Theology, on page 255, he says the author, that is, the Hebrews author, ties together the cleansing and the exaltation and heavenly session of Christ. And they, or so that they are in reality two aspects of one event. So the purification of sins in Hebrews 1.3 and his exaltation is all part of one event. We call that the Christ event. It was initiated by his incarnation and completed in his exaltation. And that whole event initiated the age that is being spoken of here for an undetermined time. This age runs concurrently with the current evil age. This present evil age, as it's called in Galatians 1.4, and there's a reference to it without the, not, without the adjective evil in Titus 2.12. This evil age ends when Christ appears a second time to fully engage the times of the restoration of all things in Acts 3.21, called the apocatastasis, panton, the restoration of everything. And God spoke about that in all of the prophets from time immemorial, according to the same verse, Acts 3.21, which we can compare with Hebrews 1.1. God spoke in times past in the prophets and in all the prophets the voice of God spoke of and pointed to the universal restoration now those who teach that Jesus is quote not coming back again and I've seen teachings like this recently and heard of them those who teach that Jesus is not coming back again and that his coming is already fully manifested here and now in the sons of God for whom all creation has been waiting. That's probably with a reference to Romans 8.23. They fail to recognize with verses like this in Hebrews 9.28 where Christ who appeared once at the juncture of the ages in Hebrews 9.26 is to appear a second time without having to bear sin and to bring salvation. That salvation that he brings 
is the restoration of everything. To say that the apocalypse of the sons of God, as it's mentioned in Romans 8.23, is the only manifestation of the appearance of Christ, is to fail to distinguish the transcendent radiance and the magnitude of the radiance of Jesus Christ, who is the bright and morning star. Revelation 22.16. Paul likens the resurrection to the stars in 1 Corinthians 15.41. And he especially notes that, quote, star differs from star or celestial luminary differs from celestial luminary in its luminary intensity. Jesus is the brightest of the stars in this analogy, and therefore he is distinguished from all other celestial or heavenly resurrection bodies because he will shine more brightly and emanate an incomparably greater magnitude of brightness, brightness that will exceed all the stars in the heavens. his distinction from all others. He alone, after all, is the radiance of God's glory. Apogasma of God's glory. Hebrews 1.3. Now, it is surely true that all of the entropic universe the universe that's presently under entropy and proneness to decay. It's true that all of the universe is waiting for the apocalypse or the revelation of the sons of God, the full manifestation of the sons of God in glory in Romans 8.23. And it's equally accurate to say that when Christ who is our life appears, Christ who is our life appears, then we will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 4 says that. But this does not preclude the fact that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. And that he will be seen by every eye, even by the eyes of those who pierced him in his crucifixion, even by the eyes of those who pierce him over and over again by uttering false doctrines. Every eye will see him, Revelation 1-7, even those that pierced him. And that's with a reference to Zechariah 12-10. Again, it is true that Jesus says, Here I am, along with the children God has given me. He could even say this in his second advent. Here I am along with the children God has given me. Hebrews 2.13, with a reference to Isaiah 8.18. He says, with the children God gave to me. These are the sons of God. But he also says, 
here I am. To say that Jesus is not coming back again is to miss the most important part by far of what this apocalypse of the sons of God is. For when they appear to the great relief and liberation of all creation, he will appear with them. They will appear with him. Their apocalypse will be with him. As the scripture says in 2 Thessalonians 1.10, in the day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be admired in all those who have believed. In any case, until his second appearance, we see Jesus now crowned with glory and honor, seated in the heavens at the right side of the throne of God. We see Jesus with the eyes of our heart and sometimes with corrective lenses. The lenses with which we view Jesus are corrective lenses. All scripture is profitable and is inspired, God-breathed, and profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so we see Jesus, but it's often through corrective lenses. We need our human traditions and sometimes our deception by demonic doctrines to be corrected, sometimes radically corrected. Now, I said that to address what I consider to be a, an error by some teachers. But now let's concern ourselves with the phrase that I introduced at the beginning. Eiston eona to eonas in Hebrews 1.8. Now, in 2013, Alaria Ramelli, more famous for her book entitled The Christian Doctrine of Apocatastasis, But in 2013, she and David Constan, K-O-N-S-T-A-N, produced a meticulous study called Terms for Eternity. And I view it, though it's a lot shorter, I view it as just as important as her book on the apocatastasis. Aeonios, A-I-O-N-I-O-S, an adjective, and Idios, a far less common word, at least in the New Testament. Idios, A-I-D-I-O-S. Idios and Aeonios and Idios in classical and Christian texts. That's the name of the book. Terms for Eternity. Aeonios and Idios in classical and Christian texts. Now, included in this book are examples from the epistle to the Hebrews. That's what really drew my attention recently, where the phrase and the related adjective aeonios are found. In other words, we have in Hebrews the reference to aeona, aeonos, and the adjective aeonios. And 
generally speaking, quote, concerning the epistle to the Hebrews, which contains several instances of Aeonios, Ramelli and Constant, quote, a scholar named Johnson, notes that in nearly every case they refer not to unending time. References to Aeonios refer not to unending time, but to the quality of eternity, the kind of life that characterizes the age to come. That's an extremely important definition. In Hebrews 5.9, for example, the PT speaks of Aeonios salvation, Soterias Aeonias. The authors of this book, Ramelli and Constan, observe in another example that, quote, the entire passage in Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 plays on the opposing or the opposition between the present and the future time. Please notice that, the opposition between the present and the future time. They go on to say, Christ is the archpriest of goods to come. Archieros, archierus, ton melonton. Not of this creation. U tates tes ketisios. Not of this creation, but offering a ransom for the next world. That's Lutrosin. Aeonion, usually translated as eternal redemption, but it means a ransom for the future world. Again, they note that, quote, Hebrews 6, 2, and then in parentheses, they say, almost certainly not Pauline. They agree with many and most scholars that this was not written by Paul, but Hebrews 6, 2 says, almost certainly not Pauline. Aeonios signifies specifically, quote, of the world to come instead of eternal. When the author speaks of the resurrection of the dead, Anastasios te necron, and the judgment that will take place in the next world, the judgment that will take place in the next world, not eternal judgment, but krematos eonio, eoniu. Now, by this study, a notable differentiation of consciousness is imparted to the reader. That is, our minds get rightly distinguishing things. A distinction is made between the adjectives aeonios, and that's spelled A-I-L-O-N-I-O-S, and idios, that's spelled A-I-D-I-O-S. You'll see all this in print if you read the notes that I have even now before me an imperfect version of them. While the former adjective, aeonios, is demonstrated to nearly always refer to the future age, the latter adjective, aeonios, is descriptive of eternity absolutely, eternity in the absolute sense. Moreover, a further distinction pertains even within the meaning of aeonios, especially in its New Testament usages. When it's related to God himself, 
Aeonios is an adjective that's descriptive of God himself or something about God pertaining to him specifically, his life, his kingdom, his covenant or throne. Then that word Aeonios or phrases like the phrase that we have in Hebrews 1.8, ice ton aeona to aeonos, denotes perpetuity or a kind of foreverness beginning at a certain point in time. They explain this, and I know I'm giving a lot of references from this book, but I'm leaning pretty heavily on their research, which I find to be remarkable. Research is probably the first of nine theological functional specialties that are so important for our time. And there's so much being uncovered of hidden truths now. And so it's very beneficial for a pastor, a theologian, a teacher, an evangelist, or anyone who explains doctrine to take advantage of the reams of research being done. But on the same book on page 58, they kind of explain this a little better. It says there, when the reference is to God, aeonios may be presumed to signify eternal in the sense of perpetual or uninterrupted, as at Hebrews 9.14, where it is applied to the Holy Spirit, penuma aeonion, penuma aeonion. Enduring, too, is the covenant, diathekes aeoniu, that is, everlasting covenant, that Jesus sealed with his blood, Hebrews 13.20, where the text continues by affirming that from Jesus Christ, the glory goes from generations to generations. Ice tus aeonas ton aeonon. Ice tus aeonas tun ton aeonon. Another phrase where aeon, A-I-O-N, long O, has the sense of an age or temporal period. Also perpetual then, going on forward without limit, is Christ's kingdom. They use the example of Second Peter one eleven, where it says, Aeonion Basileon, eternal kingdom. Aidios, A-I-D-I-O-S, is another matter. With respect to that adjective, which denotes eternity in an absolute sense, the authors say this. Human beings are not eternal, and indeed, Ideos never refers to humans in the Bible. That's important. Except in respect to their future life. That is, their life in the future aeon. A-I-O-N, long O. Which will be eternal. And then they use a couple of Latin phrases. I know I'm introducing a lot in this, but... I think we'll be able to iron these out and fan these out in future teachings. I hope, I hope. It says, in the future, aeon, they will be eternal. Then it says, na aparte ante, 
A-P-A, and then separate word, A, separate word, P-A-R-T-E, A-N-T-E, separate word. But aparte post, A, A, P-A-R-T-E, separate word, P-O-S-T. Not aparte ante, but aparte post, since it will be a participation in the very life of God. Now, this word, the Latin phrase, aparte ante, means literally from the part before. By prior birth is another meaning. Or from before birth or even before creation. Regarding eternity in the ideos sense or eternal life in the ideos sense, aparte ante means the one without limits in the past. In other words, it refers to an eternity without limits in the past, going all the way back. While aparte post means without limits in the future. Now, both aparte ante and aparte post are predicable of God. In other words, the divine existence can be said to be eternally aparte post, going back as far as without limit, perpetually, and going forward aparte post without limits. And so both of these are predicable of the divine existence, but only only aparte post has to do with our participation in God's very life. Our eternal life, in other words, begins at a moment, I would call it regeneration. And it proceeds to the future without limit. So we have eternal life as human beings, not in the sense that we lived without limit in the past, but that now we have the life of the coming age, which has no limit in the future, no limit at death, no limit through the coming future ages, or what we could rightly call forever. Ideos encompasses both eternity, aparte ante, and aparte post. But our eternal life is a participation in God's life. Now listen to this. Our eternal life is a participation in God's life, and his life is eternal both aparte ante and aparte post. You see, it's good to stretch your students once in a while and throw the ball a little further than they're used to chasing it. So our participation in God's eternal life began for us at a moment in time called regeneration, Titus 3, 5. 1 Peter 1, 23 comes to mind. John 3, 3, 3, 5, 3, 7 comes to mind. Nevertheless, our participation is in God's own life, which is eternal, both a parte ante and a parte post. So I will say, Go and learn what that means. That'll give you a goal of learning something that's not so easy to grasp. And me too. Now this study is significant on the level of our own time. For our own times. We are living in a unique and unusual time. 
not only are we experiencing what science calls a pandemic, but we are experiencing a remarkable revelation of human hearts, human plans, human schemes. Many things that were hidden and concealed are now being brought to the fore. Hearts are being revealed. And if hearts of believers are being revealed to be in any way evil or wicked, we have the opportunity of repentance. And the hearts of people in government, in authority, and in law enforcement, they're being revealed. And that's good. That's a good thing. And there are many things happening which we do not view when we view the news or hear the news. God is doing something in his grace. God is doing something from his throne of grace that's far greater than meets the eye. And faith is the evidence of things hoped for and the documentation of things not seen. It's the very substance of the future in the present for us. Hebrews 11.1. 1. So this study of aeonos or aeonios and aidios and phrases like the one we have in Hebrews 1.8 is significant for our times on many levels and for a multitude of reasons. Not least of which is the distinction applied to what has been construed for centuries to be eternal punishment. And this eternal punishment doctrine are the dead flies in the ointment of Christian truth that have repelled so many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people from the Christian faith. It's the dead flies in the ointment that cause the going forth of a stinking savor. That's a, that's a, metaphor for you, a very picturesque one. Now, the word aidios, A-I-D-I-O-S, is used only twice in the New Testament. Aeonios is all over the place. Aidios is used twice in the New Testament. Once for the eternal power of God in a passage that's influenced largely by the wisdom of Solomon. Now, the wisdom of Solomon, and we're going to look at four Maccabees. Four Maccabees, M-A-C-C-A-B-E-E-S, Maccabees, and the wisdom of Solomon. These are both books that some people consider to be part of the Apocrypha. Other people keep it as part of the canon of the Scriptures. But wisdom of Solomon and four Maccabees, along with several other books, were not translated from the Hebrew scriptures, which we call the Old Testament. They were rather written directly in Greek, and they were fairly contemporaneous, at least Wisdom of Solomon, contemporary with Paul. And so in a passage that is clearly influenced by the Wisdom of Solomon, Romans one twenty speaks of the eternal power of God. Now, obviously, Ideos fits perfectly there. The dunamis or omnipotence of God is eternal, Ideos, in the absolute sense. Ideos is also used in a little trickier way in Jude 1.6 with respect to angels who left their proper habitation being kept 
in idios chains. The angels are not said to be idios in an absolute sense. The Son is, but the angels aren't. God is, but the angels aren't. The Holy Spirit is, but the angels aren't. What's idios here is the chains that presently restrain these angels that sinned until the day of judgment, the great day of judgment, when these angels, in my view, will be transformed, not retributively retributively damned or tortured for eternity. So again, they left their proper habitation. They're being kept in idios chains. The Greek is desmois idios until the great day of the transformative judgment when all things are made new. That's a little expansion on it, including the so-called fallen angels, which I believe, and I think I can demonstrate, I don't have time to do it entirely today, even the fallen angels will be transformed to their original creative state, created state. So eternal is a proper meaning for chains, to describe chains here, if God himself is the eternal power that restrains these angels until that day. I hope you paid attention to what I just said in this last paragraph because it's not found in any books I've read. It's just my assumption and my, I think, educated guess. Idios, A-I-D-I-O-S, is also found in two non-canonical books. I don't view them as canonical, but they are what we might call deuterocanonical. They're secondary to the canonical books. They were originally written in Greek and not translated from the Hebrew or the Aramaic as the books of the canonical Septuagint were. In Wisdom of Solomon, and I think you might even be able to find that in many uh, revised standard versions of the Bible. Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 7 and verse 26. Wisdom, who is called Sophia, personified as a woman. Wisdom is said to be the effulgence, and the word used there is apogasma, the same word used in Hebrews 1.3 for Jesus being the radiance of God's glory. Wisdom is said in Wisdom of Solomon She is the radiance, apogasma, or we would call it the effulgence of idios light, eternal light, idios light. And she's called a spotless mirror of the active power of God and the icon, icon or the icon or the image of his beneficence. Now, God is light. That's New Testament. That's 1 John 1, 5. In fact, that summarizes our message. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. John 1, 1 John 1, 5. Therefore, God, if he is light and God is eternal, ideos, then God is eternal light. So that's a proper use of the word eternal light. Now, in fact, it says, ideo, Ideo is used with photos, photos, ideo, eternal light. Wisdom of Solomon, or sometimes just plain wisdom, 726. The New Testament, including Hebrews, however, considers Christ to be 
wisdom. God has made him to be wisdom for us. So God interprets wisdom to be Christ and Christ to be wisdom. He is our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30, God has made him to be our wisdom. God interprets Jesus to be the wisdom that is found in passages like Wisdom of Solomon or Proverbs 8. Therefore, that wisdom, what Wisdom of Solomon says about wisdom, Sophia, the New Testament, and indeed God himself, says about Christ. Christ is the apogasma, the radiance of God's splendor or glory, and he's also the effulgence or the radiance of God's eternal light. I am the light of the world, he said. Now, here's a verse that even is more important for our study today and for knocking over a tower of insidiously harmful doctrine about eternal damnation, eternal torment, or eternal hell, which is the dead flies in the ointment of the Christian message, which sends many people back away from the true gospel. In four Maccabees, we have, or fourth Maccabees, we have second Corinthians, so it's two and then Corinthians. We have four Maccabees, fourth Maccabees, 10th chapter, 15, 15th verse. So we have four Maccabees, 10, 15. We have an illuminating use of the word idios there. There it describes the life of the devout or the pious, the godly, as eternal life. And the word is ton ideon, ton eusebon, Bion, bion for life, ideon for life, for eternal. So the life of the pious, ton ideon ton eusebon, bion, is used there. So ideos is properly used and it's properly descriptive there because the life of the devout, or we could say the life of the believer or the Christian, is a participation in the very life of God, which is eternal in the absolute sense. Remarkably, however, and please, I hope you note this well, in the same verse, 4 Maccabees 10.15, the author describes the, not ideos, but he uses the word aeonios, destruction of the tyrant. Speaking of the tyrant like Antiochus Epiphanes, who persecuted the Jews, the eternal, sometimes it's translated eternal, but it's Ionios, destruction of the tyrant, ton Aeonion to Turanon Olethron. O L E T H R O N means destruction, Olethron. And Aeonion, A-I-O-N-I-O-U, does not mean there, or Aeonio, does not mean eternal there, but from the next age, or in the age to come. So, the life of the pious, as the Maccabees writer says, is eternal, idios. But the destruction of the tyrant is, is in the age to come, but not 
eternal. Now, in note 75 on page 67 of Ramelli and Constant, a correlation is made, and I think it's beautiful the way they do this, with 2 Thessalonians 1.9, which is a proof text for heretics to prove the so-called eternal torment of the damned or the wicked. So they make a correlation of 4 Maccabees 10.15 and the use of ideos and aeonios and the use of the word for destruction, olethron, O-L-E-T-H-R-O-N, with 2 Thessalonians 1.9, where the phrase olethron aeonion is used. Olethron aeonion is used. So let's carefully consider this, and this is to, to carefully do that, I want to just quote what they say about it. Regarding 2 Thessalonians 1.9, where those who do not recognize God will pay the penalty of a destruction that is aeonios. And they, they quote the verse in the Greek, Dikain, Tisusen, Olethron, Aeonion. You'll see all this in print if you read the notes, and they'll be coming out pretty soon. The Vulgate, or the Latin translation, is poenis dabunt in interitu, Eternus. They use the word for eternity. And it takes aeonion with decane. In other words, the Latin translates aeonion as eternus or as eternity almost all the time. That's why Augustine dropped the ball in a major way and fumbled it to the distress of hundreds of thousands of people since then by despising or being ignorant of the Greek text and using only the Latin text. And so he made all of the references to aeonios be eternal, wrongly. And he was dead wrong there. And so, Augustine, who was so good on so many doctrines, well, there's dead flies in the ointment. Sadly, there is in most of us where until we get the corrective lenses on. And so, Olethros Aeonios is attested in Maccabees, 4 Maccabees 10.15. Some people say that's part of the Septuagint. I don't. But it's, it is equated there precisely, quote, where it is contrasted with bios, Ideos, or absolutely eternal life. Listen carefully to the last clause of their quotation. Olethros, meaning destruction, is never modified by ideos in the whole Bible. Did you hear that last declarative clause in that quote? Olethros is never modified by Ideos, destruction is never described, in other words, as eternal in the whole Bible. In the whole Bible, destruction is never described as eternal in the absolute sense. 
Now, this goes to illustrate the point made by another man they quote named Peter, P-E-D-E-R, Margido Meyer, Meyer. His name is spelled P-E-D-E-R, middle name M-A-R-G-I-D-O, and last name M-Y-H-R-E. I would say Peter Margido Meyer. He's quoted on page 59 of Ramelli and Constan's book. This is what he wrote. And my heart's on board with this guy all the way. He wrote, quote, The idea of eternal torment introduced into these words of the Bible by a theological school that was entirely ignorant of the Greek language would make God to be a cruel tyrant compared to whom the most ingenious inventors of torment in modern concentration camps would be mere amateurs. You wonder why I'm being emphatic and maybe even a little loud here. Theologically ignorant. A theological school that was entirely ignorant came up with the idea and the interpretation that destruction is eternal. That hell, you know who believed in the eternal hell like the one described in Luke 16 with the rich man woke up? You know who believed that doctrine? The Pharisees. And Josephus in the Jewish wars makes very clear that that was a Pharisaical doctrine, which Jesus went into and blew up with his parable and with all of his parables. And so, this is another good reason why our exegesis of Hebrews is a theological one, hopefully not a theologically ignorant one. Hopefully, theologically informed rather than ignorant of such meanings of words. Happily, we live in a time when the traditions of men and doctrines of demons, sometimes they join together, are being uncovered and demolished The weapons of our warfare are not merely carnal and weak, but mighty through God to the pulling down of these strongholds. Among those, human traditions hooked to demonic doctrines is the damnable and pharisaical doctrine of eternal hell as an endless torture for the unbelieving and the misbehaving among human beings. So, today, the lenses with which we view Jesus may be called corrective lenses. One more gear remains in our car ride today. So we shift into it now. With all of this data behind us, we may also say that the throne of God the Son, which is said to be ice ton aona to Aonos, to the age of the age in Hebrews 1.8, which is also from the Septuagint Psalm 44.7, which is the English Psalm 45.6, that that throne is said to be properly perpetual, abiding, enduring. 
Translations like, your throne, O God, endures forever and ever, you probably have that translation. Or, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Or, your throne, God, is forever and ever, are correct as they stand. Because Aeonios, in those cases, has the sense of perpetuity when it's descriptive of God himself or of the new covenant or of the kingdom of God and yes here of the throne of God the son whenever David's kingdom or David's throne or his offspring his descendant is referred to as eternal or forever for example in Psalm 89 36 which is the Septuagint 89 37 to 38 depends on whether there's an allusion to the Messiah in the promise on that assumption we may also conclude that the scepter the word rabdos r-a-b-d-o-s rabdos for scepter of the son's kingdom which is the symbol of his sovereignty is also perpetual And so we can expect the eschatological perpetual age to be one in which equity and impartial fairness characterizes the reign of the Son of God. Wow, will that be refreshing? To whom he submits himself, and to God, rather, to whom he submits himself, and to whom he hands over the kingdom for there is going to be a moment in that age this endless age when the son submits himself to the father and when he does he submits all of redeemed creation with him to the father so that God becomes all in all there will be that time in which there will be the abolition of all authority and power that is in any way tyrannical And so another question arises as to the character of eternity and human participation in God's eternal life when everything will have been subjected to him after which the son himself will also be subjected to him who subjected everything to him that is the father so that God will be all in all. That's as far reaching out into perpetuity as you can get in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. This is speaking of an unspeakably glorious future for all of the universe of proportionate being in all of its times, which melds with the future of God. Imagine all the creation melding in its future with the future of God. That's a, that's a subject that's way out there. That's a subject that's too high for me, but it's one that I aspire to study because it's all about God being all in all. To the son whom God calls God and whose throne is perpetual, God continues to speak in Hebrews 1, verse 9. He says, you loved righteousness and rejected lawlessness. This is why God, evocative of direct address from God the Father to the God the Son, this is why God 
Your God has anointed you instead of your companions. Those companions include angels and may even specifically refer to angels there, as we've seen in our last message. This is Psalm 45, 6 and 7, or Septuagint 44, 7 to 8. So in closing, we have seen that companions here, metakus or metakus, M-E-T-O-C-H-O-U-S, you'll see it in print, The companions of the sun, S-O-N, in this context, must at least include the angels. For the entire argument of the Florilegium, or series and catena of verses from the Psalms and elsewhere, is directed toward the transcendent dignity of the sun over the angels. It has also been suggested that metakus, M-E-T-O-C-H-O-U-S, includes other kings, you have anointed him, the son, over and against or instead of other kings or royal personages of the humankind, that is. This is certainly not entirely wrong to say because Jesus is given the title King of Kings in the Scripture. 1 Timothy 6.15, 6, Revelation 17.14, and Revelation 19.16, for example, showing that Jesus is king over and sovereign over all other kings. Here, however, in Hebrews 1.9, the companions, instead of whom the Son is anointed, are angelic principalities and powers. This goes on to be explained later on because this angelology versus Christology goes all the way through 2.16, where it says... It compares the nature of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, with the nature of angels and that Jesus didn't take on the nature of angels, but he's above angels, etc. So in closing, the word metakus, which is how it's spelled in the accusative case where it's used as the object of a verb, or metakoi, M-E-T-O-C-H-O-I, which is the nominative case spelling where it's used as a subject, These, this word meaning companions or partakers is deployed five times in Hebrews. Here, in nine, it speaks of angels. Context is huge here. In one of Hebrews, Hebrews 3.1, it describes human companions in a heavenly calling, and it includes those to whom this homily was initially addressed. I may boldly suggest that it includes my audience as well. If you hold the confession of Jesus as the Son of God, and your goal is to hold that confession with boldness until the day you die, until the day you're taken from this planet, or until the Lord returns. In Hebrews 3.14, the metakoi of Christ are those who hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. Hebrews 6.4 speaks about those who become metakois or metakus, companions of the Holy Spirit. Companions of the Holy Spirit means he empowers you to pray effectively. It means that he leads you into all truth. It leads you into all truth. It means that he 
encourages you and draws up alongside of you and is your helper. There are many things that are glorious about being a companion of the Holy Spirit. And finally, in Hebrews 12, 8, the PT says that all the sons in the family of God, with no exceptions, are partakers, metakoi, of discipline by the Father of Spirits who preserves our lives in this world through his loving discipline. If he hadn't disciplined me at certain areas of my life, I would have gone into self-destructive areas that would no doubt have either brought me into total physical destruction or total mental or emotional destruction. His discipline keeps us on the path of the just. And that is, therefore, his discipline is loving and life-saving and life-preserving. Thank God if you're a partaker of the Father's loving discipline. Thank you, Father, for that. And thank you that you've allowed us another opportunity to look into your word and to see things disclosed there that are so helpful to our souls and will be so helpful through us to many others. Father, I pray that you'll today and in the days to come use these messages and other means to speak peace into the homes and domiciles of your people, that you'll speak peace where there is domestic intranquility and upheaval, that you'll speak reconciliation into relationships, marriages, friendships, other family relationships, that you, as Yahweh, will speak peace to your people, that you will deliver this not only as an internal peace to each one of us, but an external harmony so that we may live in harmony and be at peace with one another. And we thank you for this opportunity and pray that you will continually allow us the privilege of being companions of the Holy Spirit and companions of your son, Jesus Christ, as you encourage us to persevere in our bold confession of faith in him. We pray it in his name. Amen.